0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in German Studies, and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today, I'll be speaking with Stephen Press about his new book, Blood and Diamonds, Germany's Imperial Ambitions in Africa, which was published with Harvard University Press in 2021 and received the German Studies Association's Barclay Book Prize. Welcome, Stephen.
0: Hi, thank you. Glad to be here.
1: Well, we're so glad that you could join us and discuss your fascinating book with us today. So just a little background on Dr. Press before we begin. He is an assistant professor of history at Stanford University. He graduated with a BA from Vanderbilt University and an AM and PhD from Harvard University. His first book, Rogue Empires, Contracts in Common in Europe's Scramble for Africa, was published with Harvard University Press in 2017 and received the American Historical Association's Pacific Coast Branch Award. So Stephen, can you tell our listeners how you came to write this book?
0: Yeah. So, um, when I was in graduate school doing, doing research that, you know, ultimately, uh, became my, my dissertation, um, I, I, traveled to Namibia and spent some time, uh, in the, in the state archives there. And, um, what, uh, you know, sort of struck me was that there was a, a what seemed like a rather large amount of files, um, uh, that i did not know about in advance that concerned diamonds and uh of course that was one point of interest and the other point was that i went to uh the town slash city formerly known as as luteritz sort of the the initial site for the german colonial presence in in southwest africa slash namibia and when i went there the um continued importance and sort of predominance of diamonds in the local economy and really in sort of the the geographical uh landscape around that town um really struck me as as a kind of to me at least unrealized continuity um between the the german colonial period and and the present in um in in what is now namibia um so you know kind of the the motive force for me was to figure out um how to explain what was uh, sort of a present-day Namibian economy that, that depended at least to a significant extent on diamonds, h- how to explain um, to myself and then later to others, you know, h- how the architecture for that came about, with what implications, um, and also really to to um, examine something I think, at least in the course of my dissertation research, didn't necessarily um, seem to have been answered, which was if uh, if German colonialism was so economically unviable and wasteful, um, how is it that the propaganda concerning it was so uh, successful and potent uh, in the 1880s and into the early, into the 1890s and indeed, you know, right up through World War I? Um, something about that kind of uh, equation didn't seem to, to add up to me. Um, so I guess I, I, Long story short, I became interested in this project because I was interested in how economics both present day and past connected with with German colonialism and and the the continued um, importance and sort of uh, valence of diamonds in the life of of many, many Namibians um, made me think there was really something there, even though from the perspective of most secondary literature that I was encountering when I started researching German colonialism. Uh, this enterprise had been economically marginal at best and counterproductive, and sort of fanciful uh, at, at at worst. Um, so yes, certainly uh, that was, uh, I think, uh, uh, sort of a, a summary of the the different forces or or sort of pulls that I felt um, when I start, first started thinking about this project.
1: Great, and actually, my next question deals with your approach to the topic. So. This is an economic history, but also a social and everyday life history. And of course, also a history of geopolitics during the period. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about the financial dynamics at work in German imperialism and then discuss some of the bigger questions you're asking in this book.
0: Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, when I started to learn, you know, with with sort of an academic body of secondary literature in mind about imperialism, uh, one of the big questions for me was, why did the theories about imperialism that attributed its its rise and onset in the 19th century to financial motivations why did those theories fall into disrepute uh so quickly um at least in the german case those theories seem to have um been embraced at one point by east german historians but since then um to have really sort of fallen by the wayside um I thought that there might be more there in part, because if you look at other bodies of scholarship sort of comparatively on imperialism um, British case, for example, with the work of uh, Kane and Hopkins, um, there has been some revision and I think some, some accepted revision to the idea that sort of the financial motivations and dimensions of imperialism can be dismissed. Um, I think there's been some productive and, and enlightening revision on that subject in other spheres. So, operating on the premise or proceeding with the premise that, that German colonialism probably wasn't fundamentally different in that regard. It seemed to make sense to me to revisit um, the finances as a motivation for particular moments of imperial expansion, if not for sort of the whole story. Um, but uh, obviously in the German case, since a lot of this is beginning arguably uh, in a place where there happened to be in the end, lots of diamonds. It seemed to me that there was an interesting, continuity there uh, between ultimate uh what ultimately turned out to be a a large amount of of mineral resources and mineral wealth and um and and a formal german colonial presence that's sort of a little bit about um about the financial dimensions um remind me again what, what the other part of the question was i'm sorry
1: Sure, I was impressed because this is not just a financial analysis of German imperialism right examining the institutions and corporations and infrastructure associated with uh, German imperialism but it also examines how it plays out on the ground. So you examine everyday life, you examine the social groups that emerged, how it transformed places like Literates Bay. So I'm just wondering how you came to these multiple lines of inquiry and how you were even able to access sources that enabled you to paint such a diverse portrait of this history.
0: Well, I think um, one of the things that struck me when I started trying to learn about this was that most of the records that existed in say the archives of a bank like deutsche bank or in the archives of um, the former colonial ministry most of the records on the surface were official communications you know statistics about output about long-term prospects um there was quite a bit of disaggregation i mean there was a lot of discussion kind of about the 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 big sort of almost macroeconomic questions but it didn't seem as though there was a lot of attention um to everyday uh, everyday people. I mean, there are two different dimensions of that. Of course, the, the most significant one, uh, certainly in regard to ethics and morals and current considerations, is what we would now call everyday Namibians. Um, the other dimension is everyday Germans slash everyday settlers slash everyday people, whether they're settlers or not. Uh, every, everyday people who are of European descent maneuvering around in in what was then called Southwest Africa. Um, it seemed to me that that whatever literature and, and archival material existed about those people was really in separate kind of batches from uh, uh, from the uh, archived reports about diamond prospects, output, and, and so on. And to me, at least, trying to recover more about life in this particular place on the ground, so to speak, made sense because it was leading to other dimensions of the story, so to speak, that hadn't been considered to my mind before, like smuggling, um, like cost of living. Um, and I, I really thought it was, it was productive to keep kind of, uh, looking in, in those directions, um, because it seemed to me to be part of recovering, uh, the sort of discrepant, but appealing financial outcomes of, of diamond wealth, um, something that was, you know, sort of advertised and touted periodically at this large level of, of imperialism from the, from the Metropole, um, but which, you know, in reality looked very different, uh, for different classes and groups of people to say the least. Um, so, so I don't know, I, I thought, I thought it was a, a neat window into multiple worlds, like social history, labor history, um, uh, among other things. Uh, and yeah, I just, I guess that, that also convinced me that there was more to this than just numbers. And there was more to this than just arguments about, um, who benefited from imperialism even uh this was potentially a kind of opportunity to do you know it's it's naive to say but an opportunity to do something like total history um also the environmental considerations seemed um very much to be uh, to have been understated or even ignored in terms of a lot of the archival material so that that to me also seemed like a neat way to to reconstruct a you know what was a, a even to our Um, sort of, even to the eyes of European historians, a a place that was strange and a time that was strange.
1: Well, I really appreciate that you did. And actually my next question was gonna be about your archival research. So you conducted research in Germany, South Africa, Namibia, England, and the United States. Can you tell us a bit about some of the challenges you faced? Um, Were there any gaps uh, in the materials and documents you consulted, perhaps even some missing documents? And how did you deal with these challenges?
0: Yeah, I think um, to me at least, sometimes the the most appealing things and sometimes the most intriguing things were the most sparsely documented. I remember I found um, a file at one point in in uh, I think the German Federal Archive, which was marked um, something like uh, diamond finds pre nineteen um, oh eight, which was a bit of a riddle because you know at least in sort of accepted. Uh, secondary literature there there were no diamonds found there before 1908 uh, by europeans anyway um, when i opened this file i think there was one page uh, and i found that rather curious um, that that the file was opened up uh, and then had had one page in it certainly i, I can't know ultimately what the uh, circumstances were surrounding the the creation of that of that file um, but at that point and a few other points i, I started to think that there might have been some some destruction of of papers or or um uh, withdrawal of papers at, at given points which at least is a kind of conjecture added to the intrigue uh, for me uh the disaggregated nature of the sources i thought was really interesting um i thought uh, the best way uh, some of the best material i came across to really kind of confirm my suspicion initially that that there was a lot of money at stake here even in 1908 um, uh, some of the best material there lay in the archives of the Deutsche Bank um, and not, in fact, in the German Federal Archive or in the Namibian archives or um, or in other sources. Um, there, too, like triangulation was really interesting. Maybe it made sense that a lot of historians of German colonialism had not fully appreciated the economic or financial importance of diamonds because um working primarily with national archives and national archives that for a long time were split into east and west german piles um, they did not for instance uh have the archival basis in the united states for example to, to confirm just how just how lucrative these diamonds were when they showed up uh particularly in a retail setting um some of the best information i got on the real money at stake in the end with these diamonds came from u.s congressional hearings and testimony Uh, that was more or less contemporaneous with, with uh, the German colonial diamond boom, so to speak. Uh, So, yeah, I think partly, you know, kind of the luxury uh, that I have of being um, able to travel and access um, several different archives, um, the luxury I have of, of sort of the East and West German archival material that would have been siloed and and sort of ideological reasons compartmentalized for decades, um, I, I had the luxury of, of kind of examining this question with all of that at, at my fingertips. And, and uh, even in the case of a private archive of the Deutsche Bank, they, they were um, generous in allowing me to, to have a look. So um, p- partly I was just lucky to examine this question in the, in, the, in the era when I did. And partly I think taking a global or transnational approach was was helpful because this was a commodity that was really difficult to pin down. Even in 1908, say, or 1910, that was really the point of hearings in a given place, try to figure out exactly what kind of money was at stake here. Um, taking that global approach, I think, really helped put it into clear relief.
1: Yeah, and I think this really speaks to your creativity and talent as a researcher and historian, your ability to identify these different locales that help you craft this complex and, and really engaging story. So I'd like to move on to Germany's entry onto the colonial stage, can you tell us how German imperialism was similar to and also different from British, French, and Belgian imperialism, and then discuss uh, when um, and in what capacity Germany became an imperial power?
0: Yeah. Um, well, um, I guess the, the first thing I would say is that um, there's been a there's been a real sort of explosion in terms of the amount of uh, literature. and and knowledge we have concerning German colonialism, you know, within the last, give or take, 25, 30 years. Um, Partly as a result of this, this uh, now rather thick pile of of literature, we know that, you know, sort of German colonial aspirations, German colonial um, inflection points, so to speak, existed prior to the 1880s when we get this sort of onset of formal German imperialism. Uh, German overseas imperialism—that is, in in Africa and 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 the Pacific. Um, nonetheless, the question to me always remained: uh, Why does this happen when it does? Why is it that, circa eighteen eighty four, we have someone like Bismarck, who, on several occasions, you know, on several occasions makes very colorful remarks uh, concerning his his lack of interest and in, in an opposition to uh, German colonial expansion overseas. Why does this person all of a sudden seemingly? Uh, change his mind? Um, this is a question that really predates even the, the sort of explosion and in interest in, in German colonialism. But it was a question that, to my mind, didn't really have a very compelling answer still, or at least didn't have a, a satisfactory answer. Uh, there were many foreign policy considerations, certainly as Bismarck once said, his his map of, of, of Africa was in Europe. Um, uh, but even looking aside from that, um, I thought there was something to the fact that there was an idea um, that really became potent in Europe during the 1880s that uh, private parties, whether they whether they were, say, German individuals from places like Bremen uh, or, or whether they were um, German companies, uh, these individuals could sign what were, you know, sort of uh, rather immodestly and, and unfairly called treaties um, with indigenous rulers in a place like Africa or or the Pacific or Southeast Asia, and these treaties could exchange often for sort of uh, pecuniary compensation um, rights of sovereignty or rights of governance. Um, This was an idea that certainly wasn't out of step in a a place like Europe with uh, sort of monarchical history, behavior, and many other things. This was, I mean, as people know from high school classes in the United States history, for example. I mean, there's a rather solid tradition of of claiming to buy sovereignty over large uh, places predominantly inhabited by indigenous people. Um, But this idea started to really take hold in Europe in the 1880s, so my research seemed to indicate. And it was particularly persuasive to Bismarck because he wanted um, sort of the option of colonial uh, expansion, partly because he thought it was going to be popular and helpful for winning elections circa 1880. 1885, um, he wanted that with, with very little commitment in terms of money uh, and liability. Uh, so a lot of these formal German colonial ventures started as, I guess you could say private public partnerships, but with a very heavy private dimension in which rights that we would often identify as as only state rights, uh, rights rights including uh, forms of sovereignty and claims to sovereign control over certain resources and people, um, those rights often lay in private hands. And indeed this is part of the story in, in Namibia. Um, when, when the diamond wealth really came online there, the residual claims by private parties to have either something approaching sovereignty or actual sovereignty, um, in parts of, in parts of the colony, these claims resurfaced with a kind of renewed, uh, intensity, and uh, potency. So, yeah, this was, um, this was kind of the, the return of some of the uh, shadier <laughs> uh, and uh, murkier uh, dimensions of formal German colonialism. But, okay, to return to the question, uh, Germany is indeed a, a latecomer, so, of course, is Belgium. Um, to me, at least, it was always interesting to consider the, the overlap chronologically and in other terms between Leopold II's Congo Free State and the German uh, uh, overseas colonial empire. Um, Both of those happened sort of in a a stunningly precise way. Um, Both of those were supported by each other and supportive of each other. That to me was also part of the story. They claimed to be doing very similar things, running around with private individuals and parties signing very, very dubious treaties uh, and agreements with indigenous rulers uh, some, of course made more dubious through modification, fraud um, uh, and so forth, but some dubious in their very sort of in their very uh, sort of creation. This was somewhat common uh, circa 1884 1885, it was a practice embraced by all the overseas imperial powers that includes France and Britain and it was part of a renewed, uh, turned to the colonial realm by France and Britain at this time. So, to me, at least, there was, if you if you look at this sort of chronological and geographical overlap, these powers all became rather supportive of each of each other in the mid 1880s because they were trying to do the same thing, uh, that is, you know, really enhance claims they had to control of people and, and mineral resources overseas um, with minimal obligation. This is sort of the, the second great era of chartered company government uh, in, in European colonies, the first one having been, um, you know, associated with things like the various East India companies. Um, this is a second, far less uh, uh, sort of, uh, second era of, of that phenomenon and far less lengthy in its duration, but still an important one, I think, that that's worth revisiting. So, so Germany was part of that, uh, and it was fitting itself into this uh, global sort of, uh, weltpolitik like role obviously the term used here is a little bit uh, a little bit uh, out of place uh, but i do think there are also continuities there um, yeah Germany's doing this in the 1880s uh, it doesn't work out as bismarck intended or hoped uh, as is you know somewhat known uh, he becomes rather uh, disenchanted very quickly um, with uh, with his colonial endeavors uh, tries to some extent to wash his hands of them but this is this is easier said than done so germany also again like france and britain you could say um winds up with commitments that it didn't quite anticipate and winds up with problems that it didn't quite anticipate so there's a lot of commonality there between germany and these other colonial empires Um, there are some important differences Uh, but to me at least if you look at the launch of this it's it's a story of commonality
1: so when are diamonds discovered and i'm putting discovered in quotes here in german southwest
0: yeah. Well, as, as you, I think, rightly note, we have to put this in, in scare quotes, um, prior to 1908, um, 1908 is the kind of, uh, is the appropriate date if you're looking for when diamonds are in quotes discovered, um, in really large quantities. But there are a couple things to keep in mind here. Diamonds are, are very, um, peculiar. I think that that goes without saying. Um, and, uh, you know there are many cases in which europeans maneuvering in the non-desert find diamonds but either don't trust what they think they see or are told by other people uh, that these are not in fact the diamonds they think they are Um, there are other cases in which people do rightly identify these as diamonds but simply don't decide to stick it out there and launch a concerted diamond exploration. There are numerous moments, um, prior to 1908, uh, that are documented in which diamonds are confirmed to have been found in the sands of the Namib desert, uh, and numerous moments in which people in other places like South Africa or another part of, of what would now be Namibia, um, show up with diamonds that they, uh, say came from the area that ultimately is found to have large quantities of diamonds. Uh, but there are a couple factors that kind of um, continue to obscure uh, what, what exactly was going on here prior to 1908. Uh, certainly the fact that the archival evidence is rather sporadic. You know, I mentioned this file earlier. Um, that's that's part of the part of the story here. Um, another aspect is that a lot of the information is anecdotal. Uh, and a third aspect um, is that because of the secrecy surrounding this industry um, it's not always possible uh, to reconstruct uh, the movement of of a diamond that's uh, very difficult um, and uh, when it concerns things like sourcing um, as is often seen today that's that remains uh, uh, very difficult um, so i guess I would say a few things uh, the reason nineteen oh eight is is kind of a a, uh, a an important transitional point is that um partly because of the dramatically enhanced german military presence in southwest africa slash namibia in the years running up to 1908 there are a lot more people with a lot more resources um moving around in a, a very uh, uh difficult desert terrain where the diamonds happen to be located so the the odds of again in in scare quotes, discovery uh, by Europeans of of diamonds there um, really uh, uh, dramatically change in the years between nineteen o four and nineteen o eight, and so this is partly the reason uh, we have this uh, this this change circa nineteen o eight. Another big part of it is that there's an increase in knowledge of and about diamonds um, because of the enhanced presence of migrant laborers from uh what would now be called uh uh, just sort of united south africa um these are these are africans who actually know um what a diamond looks like Uh, they know what its um, valence and importance is um and they uh it, it is uh it is most likely the case uh, that it's their knowledge uh, that is responsible for the german uh, discoveries again in scarec was circa 1908 really kind of the the starting uh, the starting off or, or the the uh, firing of the first gun so to speak the starting gun um, that occurs because of uh, sort of imported migrant african knowledge concerning the technology of, of dynamite.
1: So I'm going to get to labor conditions in a subsequent section of our interview, but uh, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the Herero and Nama genocide that occurred in German Southwest. So maybe you could talk a bit about this, placing it within the context of German attitudes towards indigenous peoples in the region, um, and then how that subsequently affects access to labor once diamonds are discovered.
0: So, um, I mean, it's obviously strange and borderline and in, in inhumane of me to, um, to present as background uh, the genocide of, of, uh, of the Nama and Herero. Um, that said, um, the, you know, from a scholarly perspective and from the perspective of, from the perspective of uh, the world circa 2023, by far the most important aspect of German colonialism in Southwest Africa slash Namibia is the genocide. Uh, the dimensions of which roughly are 1904 to 1908. Um, sometimes that's 1907 rather than 1908, but I think stretching out to 1908 makes, makes more sense. Um, this is a, this is a genocide that um, uh, continues to have major visible demographic effects on, on Namibian uh, politics and society today, it is a genocide that, um, uh, Germany has, has come to acknowledge in gradations in the last few decades. Um, but it is one that still largely, um, that still largely, uh, does not have, uh, economics incorporated into its, its sort of parameters. Um, so there are a couple things to keep in mind here. Um, one of the most notorious uh, concentration camps in use in German colonial Southwest Africa during the period from 1904 to 1908, uh, uh, the Camp at Shark Island, um, is uh, rather strangely quite close to what became the diamond fields. This uh, proximity uh, is is a gruesome and disturbing one. Um, the Presence at, at such camps of military personnel um, is a factor when it comes to the uh, eventual and uh, rather stark climate of violence surrounding diamond extraction in, in German colonial Southwest Africa. Um, in many cases, when the diamond fields and, and industries emerged under German colonial rule after 1908. In many cases, these places were staffed and populated uh, by Europeans who were of military extraction, who were either uh, sort of direct carryovers from the military uh, or had um, uh, sort of dropped out uh, or stuck around uh, after, uh, after their service was uh, complete. Um, the other aspect of that is that military expeditions and military motivations also, did concern diamonds at certain points between 1904 and 1908. So there's a real kind of spillover uh, uh, of of the military um, material here into the realm of economics and, and colonial diamond wealth. Um, another point is that uh, when these diamond fields come online, there's a, 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 as you mentioned, from the German colonial perspective, uh, again rather than humane perspective. Uh, there is a, a, a stark uh, shortage of labor, in part because of the terrible violence that has occurred. Um, there are very few Nama and Herrero who are in a position to work in the German diamond sector. Um, and of course, uh, if we revisit and, and sort of emphasize the question of agency, Uh, those who do remain uh, uh, very much do not want to do this work for a variety of reasons. Um, This is not an altogether um, unprecedented situation. If one were to look at uh, uh, South Africa at this time, one would find lots of sort of imperial-level complaints about um, inadequate labor supplies. And uh, looking at the 19th century, there's uh, sort of a broad comparative problem in scare quotes of finding enough imperial labor in the right places. Um, Again, put right in scare quotes. Um, So in the the German colonial case in Namibia, what happens is that overwhelmingly the perceived solution to this labor shortage is to import workers Uh, first, First from the Cape and later on from Ovambo land. Um, this is uh, something that's going to have big implications for the future of Namibia. Indeed, if one goes today uh, to Namibia or, or uh, looks into Namibian politics and contemporary affairs, uh, certainly the Ovambo population is by far the largest and by far the most, most influential. In fact, their relations with, with Germany are somewhat determined. Um, Namibia's relations with Germany are somewhat determined today by the fact that Nam and overwhelmingly are a much smaller percentage of the population with much less political power. In any case, um, the diamond diamond, uh, industry, as the Germans see it post-1908, is hampered by its lack of an adequate labor supply. It is also in competition with other uh, sectors of the colonial economy um, for the remaining uh, potential laborers and for the potential Migrant laborers who will be imported, to use the terminology of the time, uh, to Southwest Africa. So this is an, this is a case in which you've got these different sort of colonial imaginaries: say, uh, that of a rancher or a settler, that of the military, that of uh, a diamond, miner, diamond mining company, that of a copper mining company. All of these are in competition, and they're also in competition with a sort of metropolitan German vision of this place. Um, that is itself scattered, disaggregated, in conflict, contradictory and everything else. So um, labor, uh, uh, African labor is a window into that complicated set of problems. And it is also an important window into the brutality and senselessness in many cases of of colonial resource extraction uh, in the uh, sort of era of of new imperialism. Um, I think in the end, some of the dynamics that one sees in German colonial diamond extraction, um, how this treats, uh, African laborers. I think that those are dynamics that can be, um, identified and sort of rhyme with, um, colonial labor practice in places like the Congo, uh, but also in various other British, uh, and French, uh, colonial settings. Um, and I think, uh, The final point is that, you know, we have this sort of idea in mind about conflict resources today. I think if we extend the sort of chronological dimensions of that uh, a little bit further into the past, um, it starts to seem like, uh, you know, we know, of course, infamous red rubber from the Congo, it starts to seem like there would have been a lot of red products indeed, including diamonds uh, in a lot of places uh, in the early 1900s and late 1800s. The, the sort of ramifications of which we haven't fully appreciated for ourselves in more recent times.
1: Yeah, there are definitely a lot of parallels between the colonial and what we would call the neocolonial period with respect to extraction of resources um, and how indigenous peoples are treated as laborers, uh, essentially uh, exploited as slaves. Um, and so this is one of the things I really appreciated about your book is that you draw these parallels. So thank you for that. I'd like to talk a little bit about the establishment of the diamond business in uh, German Southwest. So who is involved in this process?
0: Yeah. Um, to, to my mind, the the, the central player um, after 1908 was uh, Bernhard Denburg, the German colonial minister. Um, this was, to me, a, a fascinating figure um, because of his background uh as someone of of jewish heritage if not jewish faith uh in imperial germany um really the first of his kind in a lot of ways to uh to be a part of of, of a, an imperial german government um this was someone with at least so the perception went quite a bit of technical and business acumen another sort of distinguishing trait for him at the time um, he was also someone who was sort of associated with. A concept of the future, something almost like technocratic governance, uh, but also someone who was media savvy. Uh, so this this seemed like a really um, uh, it seemed like a really compelling personality. Um, and the more I looked into it, uh, this wasn't really anything I found or discovered myself. Uh, Derenberg was was really associated with the entire uh, German colonial uh, uh, diamond business and uh, created a a kind of legal and uh, uh, sort of technological infrastructure um, that remained in place for a very long time. Indeed, if one goes to the uh, forbidden zone in in Namibia today, uh, some of the signage and certainly a great deal of the equipment and landscape still still bear German markers. Um, None of this had to look the way it did. uh, And I think in large part, that it did um, owed to the personality and uh, sort of outlook of, of Derenberg, someone who believed that um, in order to really appreciate the potential or to realize the potential of German colonial diamond well, one had to know a great deal about the diamond business and one had to make certain adjustments and compromises um, uh, in order to make the business run profitably. Um, I think the, the question of colonial economics is really interesting as explored through Danberg because he was someone who believed rather arrogantly that he knew better, um, than pretty much everybody else. Um, when it came to diamonds, he, he might well have known better than, uh, the vast majority of Germans and the vast majority of other people in the government, but he was running up against, um, in, in the, the climate of increasing public participation and an interest in government. Uh, he was running up against uh, a, a set of of problems that kept him really from uh, asserting, you uh, know, in, in any kind of long term, uh, his dominance and, and control and authority over what, what very quickly became a very unruly German colonial diamond sector. Um, so that was, you know, to my mind, he was a, a key player, uh, probably the key player here. Um, but there were others. Um, Matthias Atzberger, for instance, um, uh, I think, you know, his his later chapters in life are, are far better known and rightly so. Um, but uh, seeing this sort of contest of personalities between himself and a contest over uh, just how populist uh, and just how transparent um, the diamond business might be, um, that to me was another uh, compelling Uh, Clash and one that provided a window into uh, contemporary considerations, not just about colonies or diamonds, but also about how governance was supposed to work, Um, especially in a time of, of, at least in imperial Germany, creeping parliamentarization. um, This was fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, I was a little shocked to learn that about Erzberger. I would not anticipated that. In any case, you just mentioned the forbidden zone, and I was going to ask you a question about that. So... The Forbidden Zone obviously relates to um, an effort to demarcate spaces where people could go and could not go after the, uh, quote, discovery, uh, unquote, of diamonds. So can you tell us about what happens once the Namib Desert is converted into these Forbidden Zones? How are people monitored, surveilled, policed?
0: Yeah, I guess the first point I would say is that, you know, if we see the the desert and the environment here as a kind of player in its own right, um, it is a place that on paper is sealed off, but a place that in practice, of course, is very much not. Um, I think one of the, for me, one of the most colorful and compelling lines of inquiry was to look at how the environment uh, uh, in Southwest Africa continually frustrated German colonial authorities. In terms of policing, uh, this was a place that, uh made sort of just the spotting let alone the the apprehension of suspected smugglers or suspected criminals very difficult Uh, this was a place in terms of property lines and and sort of a a property regime from from europe this was a place that made all of that almost nonsensical you could peg claims and uh, sort of refer to claims that existed on paper but uh, from one day to the next they could morph and shift so as to become unrecognizable diamonds, in part because of the way they were found here, not in deep uh, pit mines, but rather, at least in the beginning, very close to the surface of of a sandy desert, uh, diamonds moved around uh, on their own uh, in many cases, or fraudulently were moved around as if on their own, um, in a way that also frustrated authorities, not just in terms of property registers and claims to ownership, but also in terms of policing. So, yeah, I think uh, the, the desert, to me, seemed to have not exactly an agency, but, but a, a role as a player in its, in its own, uh, uh, in its own measure. Um, so after 1908, there of course is a, a dramatic increase in attempted surveillance and policing of, of this place. Um, that is another interesting window into how, uh, understaffed and underbaked in some ways uh german colonial governance was um it's a strange thing to say of course uh, and, and a perverse thing to say in light of the in light of the genocide but uh the attention uh paid to the actual detailed work of german colonial governance uh appears to have been much smaller than that paid by even Uh, even uh, rival or contemporary say British and French colonial officials who often thought of themselves as working on shoestring budgets or engaging in imperialism on the cheap. Uh, The German colonial experience appears to have been even more uh, uh, shoestring uh, and cheap in some of these cases. Uh, And that obviously came to bear on uh, on the diamond business uh, because in part the thinking went that if policing uh, and surveillance could be enhanced, uh, there would be far less smuggling and that would lead to far less loss of revenue uh, for, for the nascent colonial diamond business here but um, that never really uh, worked out in, in a clear-cut or, or successful way as far as the germans were concerned there was of course quite a bit of resistance to the idea of enhanced policing and surveillance there were doubts about its viability in some cases uh, as well um, but if you look at the amount of diamonds that were trickling out of this place, well, it really wasn't a trickle, they were flooding out of this place. Um, it's it's very clear that the Germans had an extraordinary problem on their hands. A problem that, although it existed in some volume in South Africa, was never on the scale that it was in Southwest Africa. Um, so there's another environmental consideration here, as I mentioned, in in, in the South African diamond uh, mining sector, there are actual mines here uh, that are in a very... Uh, strict and draconian way are surveilled and policed. Um, but the the dimensions of the mines make it at least somewhat more feasible uh, to, to control and restrict the output of illicit diamonds in South Africa than is the case in Southwest Africa.
1: Because the extraction process is so different in the two regions, right?
0: Yes. I mean, in some cases, we really can't even speak of extraction early on in 1908. We're mm. just talking about diamonds that would um as mentioned in the book sometimes you know fall into your shoe really if you stepped into a particular pile of of sand um so yeah it's a it's an interesting environmental uh study in that regard and i think you know it's another kind of fascinating uh uh uh, avenue to to explore how a vision of um of the future or what seemed to be sort of the rules of nature um could shape uh, could could change so much in a short period of time i mean Prior to the the, the Namib Desert um, diamond uh, uh, wealth uh, that materialized in, in 1908, um, it was it was seen as inconceivable that there could be diamonds in a place like this. It's one of the reasons people people often uh, at, at European visitors anyway uh, often uh, miss these things. They just don't they just don't imagine uh, that that there could be diamonds here. They're supposed to either be in a riverbed. Uh, or, or in a deep mine such as is found in in South Africa at the time, they are not supposed to be in a in a sandy desert full of full of dunes,
1: right? But in actuality, they were in some cases right under their nose or under their shoe, right? Yeah. Um. And of course, and you mentioned that that can be then a basis for punishment, right? If it if, if the diamond falls into your shoe or whatever, and it's found on your person, uh, you could be in trouble.
0: Exactly. And, and the attempt to sort of the attempt to criminalize behavior that that is. You know, quite literally, in some cases, unavoidable. Uh, that is another weak spot uh, for for the German colonial regime here. Um, it's something that I think could have been better appreciated if the people making the rules um, visited these places. But there again, you know, we run into this fairly common colonial or imperial problem from the European perspective, which is that most of the people making the rules do not have an adequate appreciation or anything approaching it of what of what a colonial landscape actually looks like.
1: So I'd like to talk a little bit about who is profiting from the discovery of diamonds in German Southwest. So obviously the German government is, but there are also a host of other groups uh, who are profiting, right? Those who assemble laborers to extract the diamonds, those who are illicitly procuring the diamonds, those who are smuggling them. So can you talk a little bit about some of these groups and individuals who are involved uh, in the, the diamond business so outside of the German government, and also how much money we're talking about.
0: Yeah, the amount of money we're actually talking about is is, is something I found you know very compelling to to search for. Um, you know, in the end, I, I don't think I don't think it's possible to, to pin it down with any precision. But I will say that the first thing to keep in mind, from 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 my way of thinking, is that um, colonial statistics, uh, which generally concern things like imports and exports, do not. Do justice um, to the amount of money that was involved in the diamond business. Um, this is something that came up in, as I mentioned, this U.S. congressional hearings earlier uh, in the early 1900s. Governments were very frustrated by trying to figure out exactly how much money was was moving around um, in the diamond business, and they were frustrated in part by by secrecy. Um, so it was very common to underreport imports and exports when diamonds were concerned. And it was very common, too, to report the lowest possible value in quotation marks for a diamond that was moved around when it was being moved around because there were taxes associated with that movement. Um, so uh, the amounts of money, I think, you know comfortably to me, uh, seemed to be in the billions of marks at the time. And that was something I, I felt was confirmed in uh, correspondence I found in, in, in the archives of Deutsche Bank, um, uh, as well as in the German Federal Archive. Um, but w- what, did that mean in part? We were talking about a long-term, uh, uh, potential here, um, certainly over the long term, since diamonds have been mined and extracted in Namibia for over a hundred years now, well over a hundred years, uh, fairly continually, uh, we can assume indeed that, that the long-term projections were not only correct, but probably, uh, uh, uh undershot the amount of wealth involved here. Um, uh, but. Um, if we're thinking about, you know, at the time, uh, how people profited and uh, where the money was going, there are a couple of things, uh, I thought were worth noting. Um, the first thing is that a lot of money, um, this is a bit like the U S railroad business. Uh, a, 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 lot of money was made not exactly in the, uh, profits of the companies themselves or not exclusively in the profits of the diamond companies themselves, but rather in sort of ancillary, uh, stock manipulation and speculation. Uh, So the first thing to keep in mind is that there was a great deal of secrecy uh, surrounding this. Uh, There was a great deal of stock jobbing uh, and a lot of money could be made that way and was indeed made that way often by insiders in 1908, 1909 through 1910. Um, Now the companies themselves were often profitable, at least the ones that stuck around. Many of them were were phantom companies with with no real business or proper governance. Um, But uh, what those companies tended to do rather than reinvest uh, profits, uh, uh, was to just pay out extraordinary dividends uh, to their uh, shareholders, uh, which were generally a select, fl- a select few, although there was broader uh, a broader sort of mini mania associated with, with German colonial stocks and German colonial diamond stocks. Um, so a lot of the money was made off, off stock jobbing, the money that was made. A lot of money was lost there too, because a lot of uh, sort of everyday uh, or uh, less elite, uh, Germans did come, at least at, at some time, to speculate in this in this stock market. Um, the other uh, aspects of the business, again, a pretty secretive business, um, in which a good deal of money was being made, um, uh, concerned the sort of stages of the value chain. So if you looked at uh, polishing, if you looked at cutting of the diamonds, Um, There was a great deal of of money at stake here too, and that's to say nothing of the importing, the exporting, and the really umpteen additional stages that come between cutting, polishing, and then actually getting this in sort of a a retail jewelry case in a place like the United States. Um, Germans were not excluded from those other stages of the value chain um, and did derive uh, some, uh, uh, some profit from them. Uh, but on the whole, you know, these questions are uh, concerning the direction of, of the diamond wealth. So uh, the German colonial mo- government uh, made some money here, although, of course, the colonial government itself doesn't get as much as the imperial government in, in Berlin. Um, uh, there was uh, also a, a sort of consortium of, of large banks and bankers who are taking a, a cut. Uh, of the uh, initial transactions, and we're also getting a cut from the cutting and refining uh, that is done uh, typically uh, in in the low countries uh, at the time. Um, the overwhelming amount of, uh, the overwhelming portion of German colonial diamonds from Southwest Africa slash Namibia uh, went, went through Antwerp and then on to the United States. The decision to locate this part of the business in Antwerp was controversial at the time. Uh, there were certainly Many voices in Germany who advocated keeping that within uh, within the German nation, a bit like the debates that go on today in developing countries um, concerning um, uh, sort of the transition or, or attempted transition from uh, fairly primary resource extraction to you know other secondary uh, businesses. Um, so. In my, I think, I think to summarize, in my assessment, um, although there was a great deal of wealth at stake and although it did enrich uh, certain parties, uh, the vast majority of the German population did not win here, even in scare quotes, uh, on financial terms. There were a lot of losers. Uh, and of course, the overall uh, uh, money that was transferred from the German imperial government to the German colonial sector was never repaid uh, at, at home for the overall economy. I don't think... If we're trying to retrace the flow of diamond wealth from namibia uh circa 1908 i don't think we're talking about a story here in which there's broad enhancement or sort of addition to the german economy in europe um, but that's not the same thing as saying there isn't uh, 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 profit and there isn't uh, money uh you know circulating in large um in large volumes uh, and i do think um It certainly was in the interest of some parties who were profiting quite a bit to obscure and and sort of deflect when it came to the questions of, of colonial diamond wealth later on.
1: One of the things I really appreciated about your book is it focuses not only on the discovery, excavation and sale, be it licit or illicit of diamonds, but also the ways in which diamonds were marketed, for whom they were marketed, where they were marketed. So can you talk a little bit about the diamond industry uh, and the demand for diamonds? What fueled the diamond industry?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, prior to prior to my research, um, I, I didn't know much about, about the diamond business and had never really thought about it as such. I mean, of course, I like many others, uh, uh, you know, would, would hear commercials on the radio or see commercials on television about you know, the gift of diamonds and engagements and these sorts of things. Um, but I had not considered, uh, nor did I appreciate that, you know, in the years preceding World War One, the United States was responsible for, give or take, 75% of the world's diamond consumption, 75% of the, the retail purchases mm-hmm. of, of diamonds. Um, this was, was, to me, an extraordinary figure and also seemed to be kind of a singularly American story. Um, when the german uh, uh, colonial diamond business got going so to speak after 1908 um, there was never an intention to cultivate and uh, sell in any kind of large measure diamonds to germans Uh, not in the end anyway Uh, everybody assumed and accepted that these diamonds would be going to the united states and in fact there are even discussions about how um, this is perceived to be a, a sort of peculiarly american institution in part because the the sort of culture surrounding an engagement ring, and particularly surrounding a diamond engagement ring, was really something that developed in the United States and and not elsewhere um, prior to um, uh, prior to the twentieth century, uh, certainly prior to the mid and late twentieth century as well. Now that's not to say there weren't diamond engagement rings before, but the idea that everybody uh, would be involved in this was a, a sort of peculiarly American one. Um, and I, I, did enjoy trying to, to retrace that and trying to understand it. And I think, you know, revisiting, uh, newspapers of the time, magazines of the time, advice columns, even personal correspondence, um, was fascinating here. I think there was a, it was a, another really sort of neat wrinkle, obviously not neat given the violence involved, but neat in terms of research, um, to consider, which was that the German, uh, uh colonial diamond business was mostly uh, involving small, high quality stones that didn't need to be modified very much in order to sort of sparkle and, and uh, become appealing to a typical consumer in a place like the United States. Um, and these were, again, fairly small stones of, of pretty high quality. So they were perfect in a way for an expanding consumer base in the United States. Um, you know, with the with the idea in the background being that again, everybody—not just someone who was wealthy, not just someone who was even middle class, but but everybody could and should uh, purchase a diamond engagement ring um, when they intended to, to marry. Um, and this was also something, uh, you know, this is this is where the story gets into, um, or this is when the history gets into um, sectors that I, you know would, would freely acknowledge, uh, 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 inadequate knowledge in, but, but clearly there's something going on in the United States. Um, quite a few things going on in regard to changing perceptions of marriage, changing perceptions, perceptions of women's agency, uh, court cases that involve, uh, uh, diamond rings, diamond engagement rings as disputes, promises, contracts, uh, contracts in their own right. Um, there's quite a bit going on here in which, uh, the diamond figures kind of as a, as a secondary or or even tertiary force Um, but that is you know another sort of aspect of a a rich um, uh, selection of types of history and, and sort of windows to look through here
1: Right. And of course, when we're talking about colonial times, we're talking about over 100 years ago when there was no knowledge by the purchaser of those diamonds of the conditions under which yes. uh, you know, the indigenous people were working. And that's actually my next question. So could you maybe talk a little bit about the nature of the diamond, uh, let's say, well, it's not exactly extraction, like you said, but... Uh, Let's say discovery, and and what were the conditions of laborers there? Who worked there, and was there any resistance to the conditions uh, that laborers faced?
0: Yeah, I mean the I think the the short and um, appropriate initial response is to say is to say that the conditions were were horrible. Um, the um, I think if you were if you were thinking about kind of the shoestring budget and senseless inhumanity that's often detectable in in German colonialism broadly, um, you would certainly find sort of an additional private sector confirmation if you looked at, at the colonial diamond business that emerged. Um, uh, the um, sort of presence and importance of, of water to me was um, uh, arguably the most kind of memorable uh, thread here. Um, water was uh, very difficult to, to come by um, in uh, German colonial Southwest Africa for environmental reasons in part. Um, but uh, the prevalence of disease and sickness often avoidable uh, among African uh, diamond laborers um, was ultimately something I found to be attributable in many cases to uh, a, a poisonous and toxic water supply um, that, um, you know, partly intersected with an overall scarcity of water, but was also also just driven by um, senseless and inhumane uh, uh, cost cutting uh, and, and uh, sort of senseless and inhumane inattention to uh, the welfare and suffering of, of, uh, of people um so the conditions in an environmental perspective were very bad uh horrible um there's the question of water there's the question of sickness and illness certainly there was uh, an extraordinary and disproportionate amount of sickness and illness uh among diamond workers uh in many cases the uh uh rates of survival for people working on uh diamond contracts were uh uh, uh shockingly low uh i I, I mean uh the rates were shockingly low for people who were uh who were making it back home and for people who were choosing to come back to work uh on sort of additional tours um the conditions for laborers to get to the diamond fields were horrible in their own right and resulted in uh, a great deal of death and suffering um once the workers made it If they made it to the diamond fields, uh, they were greeted by, as I mentioned, a sort of uh, uh, European management and culture that was highly uh, uh, infused by and with military personnel uh, and military mindsets. And of course, in many cases, these were military mindsets and officials that were finishing uh, uh, up with a genocide. and and being ported over from it. Um, So that uh, too uh, is I think uh, 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 an aspect of this uh, that is worth considering. Um, The other thing I would say is that in part because of the environment in part because of the the laws that were drawn up around this, um, the diamond fields in German colonial Southwest Africa, we're really not really, we're not really not regulated or falling under serious state oversight, even on the terms of the day, um, and even on the uh, highly biased European colonial terms that that would have been in place then. These were were largely unregulated uh, and largely um, uh, sort of um, distant places in terms of the public imagination and even in terms of what could be achieved by state officials attempting uh, to regulate and and ensure some kind of compliance with uh, legal and social norms when it came to the treatment of of workers. Um, so, yeah, there are I think it's a it's multifactorial. Uh, but in the end, the the cruelty and uh, horror of these fields um, made for a rather uh um, alarming series of connections that I think most consumers of the day, certainly of the day, and, and even, uh, consumers historically w- would have been ignorant of. This is something that might well have surfaced, say in, um, German parliamentary, uh, debates or, uh, discussions of colonial brutality in the years running up to World war one, but by and large, it didn't create a scandal. And that I thought was interesting, too, because we, we do have some contemporaneous cases of colonial labor abuses uh, turning into some kind of scandal um, that is, uh, as is known, you know, the case for uh, for rubber uh, in, in the Congo Free State slash Belgian Congo. But it doesn't happen here uh, in the in the German diamond business.
1: Right. And in addition, of course, to the high mortality rates and also just the horrible conditions, many, um, many of these men would not return. Right. They they just refused to return because it was not worth the meager wages they received. And of so, so, yeah, were, I think, there was a labor issue. Right.
0: Uh, if we if we look at African agency here and if we look at uh, resistance, it's clear there is a great deal. Um, the workers who 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 have an option to return overwhelmingly uh do not wish to do so um there are many documented cases in which uh workers are aware of the diamond field's reputation in advance do not wish to go there sometimes fraud and misadvertising bring them there anyway um uh, there are documented cases of resistance on the ground uh there are cases of uh petitioning there are cases of um Physical retaliation uh, by African workers against uh, uh, management or sort of foremen who abuse them. Um, there are uh, cases of smuggling that you can see as, I mean, what's classified as smuggling anyway? Uh, that you can see as uh, another form of resistance as well. Um, so yeah, I think I think uh, certainly you know I think the most immediate and uh, pressing. Um, consideration here is the brutality, the mortality, and everything else, uh, but um, it's also, I think, uh, appropriate and um, uh, and important to recover how uh, labor was a, a path for resistance and, and agency.
1: So I wanted to talk a little bit about the German population and also some of the other immigrant populations that especially settled around Lutteritz Bay, which was quite a sleepy town prior to the discovery uh, of the diamonds and then it just explodes and so how does the makeup of you know this area and, and the country change as a result of the diamond trade
0: yeah um well the as you you know rightly call it the, the sleepy and and eerie uh in, in light of the the genocide uh town of luteritz um, does become considerably less sleepy, considerably more cosmopolitan and considerably more on the map, so to speak, almost overnight after these uh, 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 you know, sort of diamond headlines. Um, that has ramifications within the colony and without um, the increased importance and celebrity and wealth of, of Luterates um, do put it somewhat at odds with other uh, towns, cities, and sort of sectors uh, of, of the German colonial sphere. Um, there are uh, immediately sort of contested visions about uh, how much attention, money, infrastructure will go to a place like Luderitz and how much will go to other parts of the colony. Part of that you know, fits with this overall cloudy picture in which Germans don't really agree on what they want out of this place or what they want it to look like even. How much of it will be populated by colonial settlers, how much of it will be uh, devoted to ranching or agriculture or uh, indeed mining. Um, all of that is is contested and, and contentious. Um, but the changing cosmopolitan, uh, changing and, and somewhat more cosmopolitan from a European perspective, but also from an African perspective, character of, of luterates is something that does have ramifications, you know, for some of the other sectors explored in the book, um, if we're thinking about something like smuggling, um, the German colonial authorities often thought that smuggling was a foreign problem, not actually driven by some sort of ideal German colonial settler, but rather by people who were um, uh, moving around to and from other places. Um, They also, of course, overwhelmingly attributed smuggling to to Africans, Um, and this was something that was more possible uh whatever its uh motivations or whatever the veracity of the claims uh that it was in fact in uh, uh, uh sort of uh, attached to um to, to africans more than, than germans um uh, whatever whatever the case there and i don't think that was true um it, it is manifestly the case that that the um Population was becoming considerably more diverse in terms of socioeconomics, in terms of uh, sort of geographical origin, in terms of religion, uh, and in terms of, I think, quite arguably politics. Um, all of that was going to coincide, too, with uh, within with kind of an increasing assertiveness on the part of a, uh, a colonial government that was at least a little bit less a backwater than it had been prior to the diamond wealth. Um, So there's a sort of a rich and complex um, uh, dynamic here in which um, German colonial Southwest Africa is arguably getting on a road to something like greater autonomy as a result of the, uh, the diamond wealth.
1: I'd like to talk a little bit about De Beers and South Africa. So during this period, De Beers is kind of coveting German Southwest, right? They're surveilling the diamond business there. They're interested in somehow getting involved. And then the Great War breaks out. So can you tell us a bit about what happens in German Southwest and what happens to the diamond business there as a result of the outbreak of the First World War?
0: Yeah, um, I mean, uh, the uh, paramount consideration here is, is uh, from the, the German governmental perspective, is that the colony is, is, is physically uh, lost to the Germans early on in the war in a way that's not even necessarily true in, in say, Germany's to Africa um with the diamond fields and the diamond wealth physically in control of of south african military forces uh the you know german vision long term for diamond well if indeed such a vision existed uh it's more like the medium term probably but the, the german vision for this um comes to seem unrealizable to many in the government but also retains a kind of purchase and allure from any outside the government um at the um post-war uh uh treaty making and and sort of settlement moments the diamond wealth is there in the background um and is being uh sort of bandied about as as uh uh, grist for the mill of negotiating and horse trading and everything else um de beers uh, you know, in a in a stroke of 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 uh, fortune here, um, ultimately does wind up uh, uh, acquiring, so to speak, all the former gel- German colonial diamond wealth. But it does so in a roundabout way. Um, Ernest Oppenheimer, who uh, uh, you know somewhat intriguingly early on in his life was was always frustrated by his attempts to. To enter De Beers and be part of its management. Um, he, in the sort of wreckage of, of the German colonial diamond sector here, um, acquires uh, the various claims and interests, uses them to form uh, a big part of a new company, Anglo American Mining. Um, and this company also sort of ultimately sort of winds up taking over De Beers, uh, uh, sort of becomes kind of a, a host for a new <laughs> and improved De Beers. Um, and probably the way Oppenheimer does this is by leveraging uh, the extraordinary potential of Namibian diamonds to threaten De Beers at a time when it needs to decrease uh, its production and, and diminish the amount of diamonds in circulation uh, throughout the world. Um, so uh, in a sense, uh, the, the German notion of taking on De Beers and becoming a, a serious and sustained competitor. Is, is proven uh, correct and proven realistic, uh, but not by the Germans themselves, rather by a uh, uh, rather by a, a South As- South African of German Jewish extraction, uh, 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 that being Ernest Oppenheimer. Um, I think you know the the again to think about the long term ramifications here. Um, uh, De Beers uh, is still a, a very important player in Namibia. Uh, the company that does the mining uh, where the Germans once, once ran it um, is a, is a NAMDEB, uh, a, a sort of fusion, again, to think about the, the German colonial terms a rather interesting one, a sort of public private fusion of De Beers and and the Namibian state. Um, yeah. So I, I think this was, this was an interesting uh, uh, dimension to consider, you know, what happened post-war one, um, you know, revisiting some of the, Versailles-like moments and seeing diamonds in the background uh, revisiting the question of um, uh, Taking on De Beers uh, Revisiting the question of labor um, the uh, working conditions uh, post-war one uh, Certainly do not uh, do not transform overnight um, but I do think um, uh, The long-term viability of the diamond business under Oppenheimer slash De Beers was probably enhanced relative to what it would have been uh, under German colonial management.
1: Right. And of course, there are the continuities. So you see the beginning of what we now refer to as blood diamonds starting under De Beers and the Germans.
0: Yeah, I think the, the continuity story is quite interesting. I mean, certainly it's there if you look at overall kind of South African colonial governance in Namibia, um, relative to German colonial governance, there are definitely continuities there when you think about um, laws concerning race, uh, among other things. Um, uh, and I also found that there were important economic continuities as well.
1: Right. Well, my penultimate question has to do with historiography. So your book fits quite well into recent analyses of German history, uh, that especially those that highlight continuities between German colonialism and Nazi racism. So can you talk a bit about how your book enhances and further advances this historiography?
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, as is, as is I think, um, known, um, some of the debates concerning continuities um, between the German colonial period and the Nazi period are, are among the most uh, sort of um, spirited and, and contentious uh, in the field, uh, in in recent memory, um, I, of course, be very interested in those debates. Um, I I I see my research here as having um, not exactly been uh, of a piece with that uh, uh, body of scholarship, but rather having something to contribute contribute to it in a in a sort of uh, uh, from a, from a sort of new or side angle. I do think. That when one uh, revisits the sort of brief uh, uh, period of German colonial diamond wealth, one uh, may gain new insights about the genocide. Uh, and I do think, uh, you know, conversely, uh, or, or rather, um, uh, alternatively, uh, when one revisits uh, uh, the question of of the genocide. Uh, and the question of the German colonial presence in Southwest Africa slash and indeed German colonialism overall um, retracing and recovering the, the importance of finance and economics is, is going to, I think yield some uh, results and some nuances that would otherwise go overlooked. Um, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that often came up for me when I was looking at the historiography was the so-called, Um, irrationality, uh, of, of German colonial economics, uh, the so-called, um, irrelevance or marginality of, of German colonies to, uh, the German and world economy of the time. And to me, you know, looking at, uh, sort of circuits of labor and ideas, which, which has often been done, I think in recent years and rightly so. In the, in the literature on on German colonialism, to me that that made sense to do also uh, with, with renewed attention to, to economics. So just kind of broadening that conversation a little bit, n- not to say it wasn't broad enough to begin with, but adding a different dimension, I think was, uh, for me, uh, that seemed like an appropriate step. And I do think it fits also with what has happened in other settings if we're looking at comparatively say, American colonialism or British colonialism or French colonialism. This is also something that I think ha- has happened and is happening in those in those areas of historiography. So, um, you know, far be it for me to say that Germany should be special or different in this case. Um, I think it, it makes sense to, to um, see that kind of shared approach across the study of imperialism and colonialisms.
1: Thank you for elaborating on that. Um, your book is going to be of great use to me and I'm sure many other scholars who teach on German colonialism and often end that unit with the herero and Nama genocide. But as you demonstrate uh, in your book, that was by no means um, the end of German intervention and uh, certainly not the end of German brutality in the region.
0: Yeah, no, I think it makes a lot of sense. And also, I think um, that, that seems seems right to me. And I think, um, you know, also if we, if we try to look at, you know, the period post-1908 without you know the the knowledge we have that World war one came in 1914 um there's a a lot of um potential futures and a lot of sort of a, a longer term picture that that we could probably get if if we take uh if we try to um remember that uh this is a sort of colonial project that quite plausibly uh would not have ended uh, so quickly, um, uh, were it not for the, uh, uh, sort of shock and, and, uh, world altering dimensions of World War One.
1: Right. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you about your book. It was such a fascinating read and really enlightening, and thank you so much for writing it. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me, and I just have one final question about your current research. So what are you working on right now?
0: Oh, yeah, no, well, thank you for the, uh, uh, for, for the sentiments. And I, of course, I really appreciate the opportunity to to talk with you. Um, uh, my current research is a little bit different. Um, I'm continuing kind of an interest in questions of sovereignty and um, uh, sort of how state rights intersect with something like a marketplace. Um, I'm currently researching a place called Neutral Morris Net. Uh, that's a strange name. Uh, it existed between... Sort of Prussia, uh, the Netherlands, and then Belgium for about a hundred years, and it, it did not have a government between about 1815 and, and the end of World War One. So I'm, I'm interested in uh, anarchy and um, <laughs> many other things. I'm interested in using this as uh, this place as a window into larger questions about about governance and, and that sort
1: of. Thing. Wow, sounds really interesting. I knew nothing about it.
0: No, uh, you would be in good company there. I think uh, (laughs) 99.9% of the population has never heard of it.
1: Well, best of luck on your current project. And again, thank you for speaking with me.
0: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure.